King Jesus, we just ask today that you would come and be a part of this service. We're asking that the Holy Spirit would guide us as we dive into the scriptures together, and that as a result of reading the word and applying to our lives, we would grow closer as a family and more unified as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as long as I remember it, I have been a follower of Jesus. You know, I remember a very young age, I grew up in a Christian family, and, and I uh, always thought that Jesus was my king. Um, so it's been a progression uh, in my life as I have given more and more of my life to Jesus. But because my family was a Christian family, uh, you just pick up on certain things. Like, you notice when, when we prayed, most of us bowed our heads, or might even unconsciously said, let's all bow our heads. Uh, but you won't find in Scripture a command to always bow your head when you pray. In fact, some of the people in our church actually lift their eyes to heaven when they pray. And it's like, well, that's different. That's interesting. Isn't the rule we're supposed to bow our heads? Or, uh, you know, sometimes you'll go out to meals with other believers and they'll pray a blessing before the meal. In fact, one of my good friends at the church a long time ago at Grace, I would go to lunch with him regularly. And if I didn't pray long enough, he would pray a supplemental prayer at the end of my prayer. So I would pray my 30-second blessing and I was hungry and he would just still have his head bowed and he would just continue wanting to pray another two to three minutes. And I'm like, at some point I'm hungry, brother, you know? And so um, if you're curious what the rules are related to praying a blessing over your meal, especially at lunch today, one of my favorite communicators has a video that I want you to watch for a minute this morning. Today we're talking about pre-meal prayer. Very confusing subject. A lot of people don't know when to pray, what to pray for, how to pray, who prays. Hey, do you want me to, should I pray? You want to, should we pray? I don't know if all very confusing. We're going to cover it all today. Let's get started. Chips and salsa. Sometimes they bring it to the table before you're even seated. There's no need to pray for that. Lots of people wonder about appetizers. Do you pray for them? Do you not pray for them? No prayer is necessary for an appetizer if you have entrees coming out later. Salad. That is the most confusing thing on the prayer continuum. If it's a side salad or an appetizer salad, no need for prayer there. Now, if it's a main course salad, or you're bringing it out with the rest of everyone else's meal, that then is gonna require some kind of prayer. But I put that kind of in a separate category. For the most part, when you're thinking about salads, just remember this, if it requires dressing, it doesn't require a blessing. Do I pray for coffee? No, are you a psychopath? No one wants to be next to the person at Starbucks that's praying over a latte, you weirdo. Soup, do you pray for soup? Do not pray for soup. It's only bowl-related soups. Anything smaller than that, is always off the hook. I like to say if it comes in a cup, no need to lift up. Everyone knows if you order a hamburger, that's gonna require prayer. But if you order sliders, that does not require prayer. It's a little glitch in the system a lot of people are not aware of. Potato skins, no prayer. Baked potato, prayer. Ask any Bible-believing Christian, they're gonna have a different policy on fries. Some say never eat the fries. Some say eat as many as you want. Here's the policy on fries, up to three Fries is acceptable to eat prior to the prayer. That brings us to dessert. Always a very confusing situation. A lot of times people go out to a show, go to a movie. Hey, should we grab some dessert afterward? Yeah, let me get the creme brulee. I love cheesecake. Ugh. You don't need to pray for that because you've already prayed for your meal earlier in the night. Do you hold hands before you pray? That depends on your situation. If it's a personal family gathering, some close-knit Bible study of some sort, sure, a hold hand wouldn't be uncomfortable. Now, if you're on a Tinder date, that might throw off the mood a little bit. Most of the confusion surrounding pre-meal prayer comes from when to actually pray. 
Let me just say on behalf of waiters all over the world, please pray when your waiter is not there. There's nothing worse than a waiter coming out with two full arms of fajitas and you're over there mid prayer a Jabez. Like, what are you doing? Last but certainly not least, who at the table volunteers to lead the prayer? Lots of people say the man should lead the prayer. Why is that? I'm not sure, it's 2018. Maybe we should get that rule adjusted at some point in the near future. A lot of people operate under the most spiritual person at the table. They're gonna be the one that should pray because that prayer is gonna be the most powerful and effective. So if you got obviously a pastor, a missionary, even a Christian blogger of some sort, shoot, even a volunteer youth pastor, that prayer is gonna be a little less effective, but it's still gonna qualify. If you're just an average person sitting at the table with obviously more spiritual people around you, you're kind of off the hook, because I feel like God would be like, hey, how come y'all didn't bless this meal? You'd be like, I don't know, ask the pastor, he works for you. Now, what I appreciate about that video so much is we've all had thoughts like, are we doing it right? And, and we all have these different little micro divisions of culture and practice where the Bible just isn't real clear about everything. And in Paul's day, he was dealing with uh, some issues of culture in the Romans church. See, the Romans church was built of two different main groups of people. You had the Jews who grew up with one culture. You had the Gentiles who had a very different culture. And as Paul and Jesus are desiring one church, one unified family, what's happening is these two different groups of people are struggling in getting along uh, when it comes to different issues in the church. So uh, what I want to do is I want to turn to Romans 14 this morning, and I want to see the kind of differences that might have arisen in the early church that Paul felt like he needed to address and if you don't have a Bible this morning, there's one in the seat in front of you, and I'm going to have page numbers up. If you also have an app, you can use it as long as you know how to use it. If you don't know how to use it, grab a Bible. Um, but, but before I jump in this, I do want to give this disclaimer. None of the issues Paul is about to talk about are core gospel issues. You know, the core gospel is things like Jesus is fully the Son of God. You know, Jesus really did die for the cross for our sins. These are core gospel issues, and Paul is not addressing these in Romans. And we'll see that very quickly. So, of course, we have to be unified and uniform about the gospel. But there is other issues which we do not, we need to be unified as a family of God, but we do not need to be uniform in all our beliefs. So let's see what Paul does here in Romans 14, starting at verse Verse 1. Now, except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, and he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. So what's the big deal with being a vegetarian here? Because uh, it seems to me like you want to be a vegetarian. Why not? What's the big deal here? Well, really what's, what's being uh, talked about here is some of the culinary laws that God gave the Jewish people in the Old Testament. You know, one of the big ones was you should not eat pork or you should not eat bacon as a Jew. And, and one of the reasons why God gave these laws to the Jewish people was so that they would be a separate nation. And we don't know all the reasons he gave these to them, but it did result in them being a separate nation set apart for God. 
So uh, in the early church, we have the bacon eaters, which were the Gentiles who really loved their pork. And we had the bacon forbidders, the people who did not eat the bacon uh, on the other side. And they could not figure out how to get along with each other. And I personally, um, you know, this, this hits me close to home because every Friday morning at my house, we have special breakfast Friday, unless it's VBS week and then we push it to Saturday. But normally we have special breakfast Friday and bacon is prominently placed in the middle of the table at my special breakfast Friday with my children. It makes me hungry just thinking about it. Um, But it's important uh, that even though there is this division in the church, that Paul does not immediately say, well, let's get everyone on board with each other by all being in agreement. No, what does he say here? He, He says that they should accept one another for God has accepted both. You know, and, and just so you know, Paul does signal he has an opinion on this issue. You know, you notice those adjectives he placed at the beginning where he talked about weak and strong. You know, he, he says, you know, those who are weak are worried that they may be doing something wrong, even though Jesus and Paul both taught that it's okay. You know, in Mark 7, uh, 18b, Jesus says this, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their hearts, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And in 1 Timothy 4, Paul affirms the exact same view, that now these culinary restrictions that were placed on the Jews are no longer in effect for the church. However, if you grew up all your life and all your friends always thought that this was wrong, I can get where they would come from, saying, this just feels weird. This feels awkward. I don't think we ought to do this. I get that. And so Paul gives us a few instructions in these first four verses of Romans 14 on how to handle it with this micro division in the church. Because if this thing keeps going, if this thing keeps becoming more and more divisive, what will end up happening is you'll have the first Roman Gentile church, and then you'll have the first Roman Messianic church. And that's not what Paul wants for the church. He wants us all to come together and be one family. So the first thing that Paul says is accept everyone in the faith. He said, notice that both groups have faith. Both of them are trying to honor God with their lives. So if someone has accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, if someone has accepted the core gospel and has accepted Jesus as king of their life, then me, as a son of God, ought to accept my brother in Christ. That's appropriate, even if we differ slightly on how that looks. The second thing he says is, those of you who are strong, be humble. Be humble. And this is something that I have struggled. In fact, my wife jokes that the whole Chevron family has this pride thing going on. We all have to die to as we get older. And I, and I get here where, you know, you have these Gentiles saying, well, we can have bacon. So let's just look at those silly people over there who feel like that's wrong when we know in the freedom of Christ that we have that we can eat the bacon. And, and it's important that those who feel the freedom don't have uh, disdain for their brother and sister in Christ. 
you know, the Greek word in verse 3 is exutheneo, and it really means to, to just have this despising of a brother for how silly he is or how unholy he is or how unworthy they are. You know, it's the same word. There's a, there's a story Jesus tells about a tax collector and a Pharisee, and they're both praying to God. And the Pharisee looks over at that tax collector, and he has this exutheneo, this despising in his heart for the tax collector. And Paul's using that same word to say, if you, in your freedom of Christ, feel like you can have a bacon cheeseburger with sesame seed buns, don't look at your neighbor who doesn't feel that's right and despise him for the lack of freedom he feels in that moment. Don't do that. Now, it's okay to ask some questions. You know, I mean, my life group, we're always diving in the word together and we'll have different convictions about an issue. It's not usually bacon we're dealing with. It's not usually how to bless the food. We have different convictions. And we'll go around and we'll say, man, how did you arrive at that conviction? And we'll ask each other questions and we'll really try and say, man, I would love to hear more and learn from you on how you got there. It's okay to ask questions. What's not okay is for me to walk away and despise my brother for where he landed in that issue. Proverbs 27, 17 talks about this exact thing. It says, you know, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Now, it doesn't mean one man slices another when he does it wrong. No, we're, we're just pushing on each other gently and sharpening each other. I love on the disc golf course, I'll go out with some of my friends, and we'll, we'll sharpen each other on different ideas of Scripture, and that's a good thing, as long as we don't despise one another at the end of the conversation. Stay humble. Now, what does Paul say to the weak? Because he's signaling that Paul is on the pro-bacon side here. Paul, because he taught in 1 Timothy 4 and he knew about Jesus' teaching, he's on the bacon's okay side. But what does he say to those who believe bacon is wrong? What does he say to those who, who, who don't feel the freedom to do that? He says, be careful in your personal conviction about this matter to not judge those people that are eating the bacon cheeseburger with sesame seed seeds on the bun. Don't judge them as being less spiritual. Don't be judging them as being wrong. This happens all the time in my house. See, I've got four kids, and I am trying as a parent to figure out how to parent four children. And so um, one of the things we're trying to do is on a Sunday morning, we want to get here on time because it looks really bad if the pastor's late. So um, we want to get here on time with all four kids. We want shoes. We want bathes. We want, like, shoes on the right feet, all the basic things. And so to accomplish that, one of the rules we have is once you're bathed, you ought not run to the backyard and play in the creek catching bugs, which is my son's favorite activity to do right now. And I want to say he catches some cool bugs. Like sometimes I'm like, that is one of the neatest bugs I've ever seen. And he's good at it. Like he, he really pursues them. So, you know, all the time, it's 100 degrees outside. He's like, can I go in the backyard and catch some bugs? But we all know the rule. You know, when mama has bathed you, when you've been declared clean, don't go outside and become unclean. Because that will require more work for mama, which she does not appreciate on a Saturday night before church. So this last week, my son had been bathed, and I'm walking by the backyard window, and I look out, and I see, sitting out next to the creek, my son's pair of tennis shoes. And I'm thinking, now why go outside, take off your shoes outside, and leave them outside? This makes no sense to me as a parent. Um, but I'm like, okay, the shoes cannot stay out there. They have to come inside. But I don't want to go out there. So I'll say, hey, son, would you go get your shoes and bring them inside where they go in the first place, right? So he runs outside. And all my children have a radar up 
for when there's a sibling that is doing something wrong. I don't know how it happens. If you have siblings, this has probably happened to you. But they walk through, and my, my daughter Grace comes through, and she sees David outside post-bath, and she screams out, he's a sinner! He's a violator! He is in trouble. Daddy, you need to get him in trouble. I want to see him punished. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, the joy level is a little too high right now. You know, the joy at catching your sibling in this transgression needs to be toned down. Secondly, you don't know the whole story. You don't know the whole story because you don't know that I sent him outside to get his shoes, not to play in the creek and catch bugs, but to get his shoes and bring them back inside. And thirdly, I have not deputized all of the siblings with the job of catching all the transgressions of mommy and daddy's rules in the home. That will be a horrible thing if all you guys had your share stars and were immediately dishing out justice all the time. And I think what God and Paul are trying to say to us is we have not been deputized in the role of judging one another when it comes to matters of personal conviction. We ought not see somebody enjoying that juicy half-pound bacon cheeseburger and think, violator. What we should think is, well, I have a different personal conviction, but I don't judge him as being less spiritual for feeling that he can do that. And that is the way that we achieve unity. And he says one more thing later on in the passage. This is uh, in verse 13 and 14. I want to read this, and we'll come back and catch some verses. But this is a, a fourth thing he says. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know, and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And, and I don't know if you guys uh, have ever been um, in a family with young children, and this is something I experience when I'm getting groceries out of the car. Like, I'll do the, the Walmart grocery pickup, which is awesome. If you guys haven't done it, it's fabulous. You get all these groceries, they put them in your car, and then I get home, and I have, like, two bags of groceries in my hand, and I'm walking towards the door, and immediately one child will scream out, Daddy's home, which is very cool. I love being celebrated. Um, so Daddy's home, but then as I'm walking in the door, I have four children hitting me below the knees, so I'm like trying to like navigate over my son Daniel and I'm like, seriously guys, I'm just trying to get in the door and they're a stumbling block in my way. They're causing me to trip up where normally I wouldn't have a problem. I, I come through my doorway all the time, no problem. No tripping hazards. It's just when my kids are ramming me at the knees that I become uh, a little faulty on my feet. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, in your exercise of your freedom, Let's not cause a brother to do something that might violate his conscience. Because if that brother feels like eating a bacon cheeseburger is wrong, then it is wrong for him because his conscience should be honored. His conscience should be valued. And even though Paul has an opinion, he's not saying, man, if we can just like shove a bacon cheeseburger in his mouth, he would notice how good this tastes and he'll be on our side. It's not shoving, it's honoring. 
And so he said, don't be a stumbling block in a brother's way. And we're going to deal a lot more with other issues because I know that all you guys have had lots of fights in your families about bacon and no bacon. So uh, we're going to deal with some issues maybe more closer to home. But before we uh, hit some other issues in our day, let's hit another one in Paul's day. Because Paul talks about another one uh, related to the Sabbath day. This is talking about worship. I know there's never been any disputes or divisions in modern times about worship. Um, But in Paul's day, there was. There was. So uh, let's see how Paul handles this. Uh, But before we get into it, we have to remember what Sabbath is. It's kind of a weird word, Sabbath. And Sabbath was something that was presented in the Old Testament as one of the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 20, we read about it like this. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In Mark 2, Jesus, talking about the Sabbath, says, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And this is a great principle for us today, that we ought to have a day of rest, one in seven. But what's interesting is in Paul's day, there was lots of struggles about what that meant. The Gentiles had a very different view of what Sabbath meant than the Jewish people did. And the Jewish people even had many different divisions within the Jewish culture of which days do, or is the Sabbath day? How long is the Sabbath day? When does it start at sundown? Does it start in the morning? Um, how do we do these feast days? You know, is this three days long? Is this a week long? There was lots of division about what was the right way to worship, what was the right way to honor God. So, so how does Paul handle this? Um, and, and if you, I don't have time really to go into all the issues with, with the Old Testament and the New Testament, but I would encourage you in the sermon notes today, if you go to graceonton.com and go to our sermons, go to today's sermon, I linked to a series Gary did back in 2014. It's one of my favorites he's ever done uh, called the Sermon on the Mount series. And what he does for that entire series is he goes into the Old Testament and he pulls out things that were commands. And then he takes you to where Jesus talks about these commands And then he applies them to our world today. And it's just a fabulous time if you want to dive deep into some of these issues of Old Testament versus New Testament. It's a great place to go. But Paul isn't really even going to try and tell you where he even weighs in on this one. He's just saying, guys, I'm going to give you a way for we can be united in Christ, yet not be uniform on this issue of how to worship. So how does he do it? Romans 14, verse 5. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, that's the Sabbath day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he's not eating and gives thanks to God. Paul says, all of you guys are in the family. All of you are giving thanks to God. All of you are honoring God. So surely we can find a way to get along and be unified. And he goes on in verse 7, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? 
Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt for, and I'll just italicize, for the personal conviction that he has? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, you may be wondering here, you know, why we spent some time talking about bacon and Sabbath, because these aren't the divisions I think that I've experienced the most in the church. Um, There's other ones, but I just want to start with just saying that Satan loves dividing families, and he loves dividing believers, he loves dividing ministries, and he loves dividing the church. The reason why he loves dividing us so much is he knows if he can get us fighting with one another as a family, we'll be a weak family. I know when my family is doing a whole lot of arguing and griping each other, we can't get anything accomplished as a family. We can't go anywhere. We can't serve anyone. We can't do squat as a family because we're too busy fighting each other. And as a church family, if Satan is able to get in here and create an us versus them, the bacon versus the not bacon, the Sabbath keepers versus the non-Sabbath keepers, whatever the issue is, if he's able to get in here, and create this idea that part of, part of the church is holier than the other part, or any of that, that kind of stuff, and he will divide us, and we will be a weak church. And my heart is that we'll be a strong church. See, one of the things I love about grace, that I've loved for so many years, is the diversity that God has brought here. You know, I, I recently did a, a search on our, our church database, just looking at the ages of our church. And I looked at how many 20-somethings, how many 30-somethings, how many 40-somethings, how many 50-somethings are here. What was so cool was we have about the same number in every decade in our church family. That's so unique. You come into my life group if you ever visit on a Thursday night. I got people late 20s, early 30s, all the way up to almost 70. Huge, wide range of age in my life group. And it's wonderful. We're able to really hear a different perspective many times. We're able to really understand why different groups of people might have different convictions. And we're able to really honor one another's convictions in a lot of these things. It's a wonderful thing. We have people from all sorts of countries around the world that have made grace their home. I was talking with one of our interns from England last week just about some different things that he's encountered just in his culture versus our culture. And I love that about grace. It makes us stronger when we do not allow the enemy to divide us. And so it's important as we dive into um, some of the issues that potentially could divide us that we realize, okay, God wants us to be united about non-core gospel things. I want to read one passage Paul said to Titus, which is uh, really useful here. Do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless and a waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning, and after that have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth, and their own sin condemns them. Now, again, we're not talking about people who just want to learn from one another. We're not talking about humbly asking questions. We're just saying, hey, if people are hung up so much that it's their way or no other way, that concerns me about these peripheral things. You know, Paul uses the word disputable things. Um, So that's an important deal. So, you know, in our church, our size, we have a lot of different things that might divide us. In a families, um, my family has many different things. So what I'd love for you to do is kind of grab a pen. And I want you just to think for a second, what are the divisions 
that you have experienced. Just a couple. You can write down there if it's the Sabbath day, if it's, uh, you know, bacon, you can write those down. It's probably not. Probably you can think of some other things that you and your Christian friends, you and Christian brothers and sisters, you and maybe other churches you've worshiped at might divide over. And I want you to write down a couple of those and have those in your mind because what we want to do is we want to take Paul's plan his, this, this way of thinking that he sits out in Romans 14, we want to apply it to your individual situation. And I don't have 17 hours to go through all the micro divisions uh, that have happened in the church. Um, and so I'm going to pick a couple. Uh, but the idea is that after you've written down the things in your mind, you'll be able to apply the same plan to those that I'm applying to this. So um, we talked about, again, accept everyone in the faith, be humble, don't judge and don't be a stumbling block. So the first one I want to talk about is one that Paul actually talks about in Romans 14, the subject of wine. So wine is something that was a little controversial in Paul's day. It's still controversial today in the church. Should we drink wine? Should we not drink wine? This is, a, this is an issue. And if I were to pull the church, there would be a diversity of opinion on this issue. Um, so this is what Paul says in Romans 14, 21. He said, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Now, uh, in my family, I don't know if you guys know this, uh, I'm first generation American. My dad was born in Germany. And so he immigrated through Ellis Island, did the whole Statue of Liberty experience. And, uh, and so he remembers life in Germany when he was born. And uh, during some of that time, he came over as a young child, but he was old enough to remember. So I grew up in a European style family. And at every family celebration I can ever remember as a child, there was always wine at the celebration. I, every single one. I, I like, it was just part of the family. Now, my dad was a pastor. He was a church planner. He was a graduate of Dallas Seminary. So I grew up with this concept that wine and Christianity are fine together. And what's also interesting is in my family, I never saw anyone drunk with wine. I talked to my siblings about this and, and, and I'm like, hey, do you ever remember like ever seeing mom or dad or Uncle Rudy or, and like, we just never saw anyone drunk ever. In my entire going experience, I, I never saw it. Um, just how sheltered I was in East Texas, I never saw anyone doing drugs. I just never saw a lot growing up. I was a very sheltered kid in a lot of ways. Um, so I just grew up kind of thinking, man, you know, this is not an issue. This is a non-issue. Freedom in Christ. You want a glass of wine with dinner? Go for it. It wasn't until I came to Grace Community Church and I started meeting some people, you know, through different ministries and different stories where I found out that there are families where wine has come in and people have overused it and have really uh, wreaked havoc in a family. There's a lot of pain associated with it. There's a lot of um, just hurt related to uh, people abusing wine. And the Bible is very clear about this. The Bible explicitly says, do not be drunk with wine. So if you are drinking too much wine, you ought not. That's a sin. You ought not do that. But what I realized is I need to have more of a sensitivity to a brother or sister in Christ who has a personal conviction about this. Now, it doesn't mean um, we're, we're, I'm trying to say I never drink wine. What I'm saying is it is not a good thing for me to invite a brother or sister who has a personal conviction about wine in my house and offer them a glass. It's not okay for me to do that in front of them because that might cause them to say, well, I haven't done it in a while. I'll do it, even though I know it's wrong in my own heart, and I'll do it because I've encouraged a brother or sister to violate their conscience. And that is not appropriate. Paul's saying it's a good thing for me to limit some of my freedom 
to keep a brother or sister in Christ from stumbling. You know, just another random example, kind of along the same lines of addictions. I had um, someone in my life group one time where the guys wanted to hang out. So I invited some people over to my, uh, one of the guys' house. It wasn't my house, but we were going to have penny poker night where everyone chip in $5 and we're going to do some, you know, five card draw or something. I'm terrible at all this, but I'm like, I'm in. So uh, in the process, one of the guy's stories, we found out he had had a past gambling addiction and he was trying to decide, do I go? And, you know, I'm talking with him about this, and I'm saying, man, I don't want you to even feel like you have to get close to this again. I'll ask my friend, we'll just change the agenda. We'll do board game night. It'll be awesome. You know, I don't want you to feel like you have to decide if this is close to a conscience thing for you or not. I'm just going to, we're going to change it. It's great. And we never had penny poker night, and we had a ton of joy around it. And so I'm just saying that even though we have freedom in Christ, Paul's saying have a sensitivity to a brother or sister. And I, I just say this kind of applies on Facebook too. You know, if you're shouting out things, um, you might just have a sensitivity. If there are brothers and sisters who have past stories with some of these things that are more divisive things, you might, you might just say, wow, I want to make sure I'm not being a stumbling block, causing someone to stumble to do something that would violate their conscience. And all you guys are thinking, I hope he covers my thing next because I got a big one right here. Um, I have no idea because I'm not taking texts or suggestions. But I do want to hit another one, um, just kind of this umbrella of parenting decisions. I think it is hard to be a parent. I'm like, oh my goodness, it is one of the hardest things I've ever done. And, you know, I'm looking at the Bible saying, Lord, would you help me know what to do in this situation? And I'm always talking with Mary Van Ruckel, like, man, tell me, tell me you know, how you handle this. And there's just a lot of decisions, and you're trying to honor the Lord with those decisions. One of the things that we've decided in my family is we have a personal conviction that God has called us to homeschool our children. And that's just something that God's called us to do. And if you ask my wife, do you enjoy it? She'll say, no, I don't enjoy it. It's not fun. I kind of wish God had not given us this conviction. So as I think about how Paul would apply that, there are some people who I've heard said that homeschooling is the best way or homeschooling is the only way. And I just want to say that doesn't seem to fit on this disputable issue of homeschooling or not homeschooling. What Paul says here, Paul says, accept everyone in the faith. You know, I have loved this year getting into the public schools regularly through Hoops for Hope and Read to Win and the outreach we did in May. I've loved becoming friends with some of the teachers and principals I've gotten to meet this year. And as a homeschooler, it's been great to not just accept them with words, but accept them with acts of love throughout the year this year. Um, but it's important that we accept everyone in the faith. You know, it's important. My daughter goes to youth and just, and she does this anyway. It's just innate, but just, yeah, we accept everyone who's, who's in there because we're all under the umbrella of Christ. So accept everyone, homeschoolers, private schoolers, charter schoolers, public schoolers. The second is be humble. You know, I need to be careful uh, to be humble about this. And I need to be careful also not to judge. You know, my brother-in-law, he uh, is an amazing father. You know, he is, his wife, Holly, is an amazing mom. And they have a different personal conviction about their kids and how they're raising their kids. And I just see their kids flourishing. And, and I look at that and say, you know, I am so glad that God has given both of us different things and we interact on them and we're just trying to do the best we can. We're able to accept one another and we're able to not be a stumbling block to each other. It's great. And so as you think about parenting decisions, man, I would just say, you know, it's great to ask questions, 
But make sure that you verbalized acceptance to one another for other people that are trying to honor the Lord and have landed on a different decision about a parenting thing. You know, another one that comes to mind is uh, that I've experienced in my life is Bible versions. So we'll head back to a little theology camp in the morning. If you ever want to have some fun conversations about versions of the Bible, grab a Wycliffe guy in the room and take him to lunch, buy him lunch, and say, I just want you to explain to me what's the best Bible version. You'll have a great time. You know, I've done it with Mike Cahill before. It's fabulous. Um, and, and I just want to tell you that um, I don't think we'll find in the New Testament an official three-letter acronym for the best version of the Bible. And yet in my family's experience, you know, my family had a personal conviction. And I, when I say my family, I'm going to say my parents had a personal conviction about Bible versions. And we attended a church one time, and they put a, a Bible in the seat backs that was different than our family's personal conviction. And we left the church over it. And, and I grew up thinking, man, that just seems weird, you know? And, and my dad later just said, yeah, I don't think that was the right decision. Uh, but at the time, it felt like we are standing for the gospel here. They put the wrong version of the Bible in us. So we are standing for truth. And, and I just, I look at this and say, man, I think that that doesn't really fit with Paul's model here of judging, being humble, uh, not judging, being humble, accepting one another, and not being a stumbling block. Just one other one just that, that kind of hit me a lot as I was processing through this in my own faith is, um, and so this is not the one you wrote, then I'm sorry, I'm not going to get any more after this, but the same thing applies. Uh, but the whole idea of holidays, you know, do we celebrate Christmas? Do we have a Christmas tree? Do we have Christmas lights? Do we have Santa? Do we have Easter eggs? Do we, all the different holiday things. This kind of fits with the Sabbath discussion with Paul, you know, and he's, and he's talking about, you know, how do we handle all these things? And in my family, we have a lot of division, you know, in my extended family, my brothers and sisters, about how to handle all the holiday stuff. But one of the things the Lord was speaking to me about is I feel a great freedom to celebrate cultural Christian holidays. But I've been convicted that I have had contempt in my heart for people that felt like it was not honoring God to celebrate those. And I actually had to get for the Lord and say, God, I'm sorry for those times when, when I have judged a fellow believer as being a legalist, when I've judged a fellow believer as, as just being all caught up in weird stuff. And I'm like, man, I, I feel great freedom here. And so, um, you know, as I'm processing through holidays, I'm saying, you know what Paul would say? You know, it's okay to ask each other questions, but let's honor one another. Let's try to, you know, if I have a friend who's coming over to my house and I know that he really feels strongly that a Christmas tree is not the best and he's spending Christmas with me, I might find a different way to decorate. I don't know. I'd talk to my wife about it, but, but that would be the kind of thing that I might think about and just a way to accept and love one another. And so as we, as we close, I just want you to think about some of those divisions that you wrote on there and think, is there anything you need to do to verbalize acceptance to somebody, because it's not okay just to accept them. You sometimes need to verbalize it. To verbalize, I just want you to know, I accept you. I know you're different. I know we got some, some different convictions in different places we've landed here, but I just want to know that I accept you. You know, I think that's important for us to make sure we say that every once in a while inside a family, inside a church family, you know, across churches. You know, I see Gary do this so well. You know, we're at pastors meeting with churches that have different personal convictions than we do on certain issues. And I just see him lead with humility and I see him lead with acceptance, put his arms around other pastors and say, you know, I just, I'm glad you're here. And it just really touches my heart. I'm like, that's the heart of Christ here. 
you know, if there's any issues uh, that we've talked about where you're thinking, man, I've been a little arrogant. I've been a little thinking like my way is the only way. And if they were just enlightened, if they just had my uh, intellect, uh, then they would understand the hidden wisdom that I do. Um, and just having a humility about, you know, your faith. You know, as Paul you know, grew in his faith, I see him becoming more and more humble. He talks about him being the chief of all sinners. I think the closer he got to uh, becoming like Jesus, the more he noticed how unholy he really was. And I think that's true for us. As we become more and more uh, like Jesus, we'll notice the parts that God has not redeemed yet. And, you know, don't judge. You know, let's make sure we don't have the stars around us that we're real excited when we catch somebody in, in a sin. It might not even be a sin, but if we, let's make sure we're not, not judging. But it is okay to ask questions. I think sometimes we have brothers or sisters that are heading for a cliff, and it's always okay because sin causes death. It's always okay to, to reach out with a loving arm using that relationship and say, hey, you know, this might not be a wise thing for you to be doing. We do that in our life group all the time. You know, we're, we're offering that encouragement, that exhortation. But let's be careful that we're not judging. And let's ask ourselves, is there anything that we're doing in our, in our freedom that might be a stumbling block? And I'm not saying go look for stumbling blocks. I'm not saying, you know, never share anything. But I'm saying if you know someone's story, if you don't know someone's story, you should ask their story. And that's a great thing to do over dinner. Say, can you just tell me some of your story? If you know someone's story and you know they have a personal conviction about something, Man, wouldn't it be beautiful in Christ to honor that and to accept that and allow them that personal conviction? Um, and, and so I thought, you know, how, how, do, how do we end this today? And, and I thought one of the things that I would love to do is from the very earliest part of Christendom, there was something called the Apostles' Creed. And this was a core statement of belief because the problem Christianity had was we had all these different cultures and how do we get everyone together? And so they, they hammered out this creed, which is this is what it, the core gospel is. And this can be said at every church across the region and we can all get on board with this. And so what I'd love us to do is stand up together and I want us to finish with a statement of unity across this church. Now, uh, before we do this Apostle Creed, I do want to invite um, any elders or pastors in the room to come forward. If you need prayer today, if you need prayer for God to heal you, God to provide for you, if you need prayer today, I encourage you to take advantage of the elders or pastors that are going to be up front down here. Uh, they are here to uh, pray for you. Also, if you're brand new this morning, I would love just to hang out with you for a minute. Over here in the Welcome Center, right after I pray, is going to be a place where I'd love to give you a gift and just, uh, interact with you for a couple minutes. And if you're not new, but you're looking for a way to get connected, in the back corner, we have Connection Coffee. They're there to help you get connected on a, on a more uh, tight basis with us and there to answer any questions you might have. So I just want us to, to read the Apostles' Creed, and I'll close us in prayer today. Go and flash up the next slide for me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I believe from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, 
the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. God, we just ask right now that you would help us to be agents of unity this week, that we would be people that would have a glue that comes from a gospel understanding of what it means to be family, what it means to have you as our king and us as your children, and that we would grow in our ability to be peacemakers and unifiers, not just in our church and not just in our families, but in this city and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.